Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by that wascally wabbit, Jeremy Goldcorn, uh, otherwise known as Yumi, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? Uh, as always, I'm doing very well. We're recording our podcast. I'm very happy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, in, in fact, today I'm going to let you take the driver's seat. I'm going to play li- rhythm and let you play lead on this jam. Right, I know. Oh, and, you know, it's because a we're rare talk- opportunity. Yeah, because you know yeah. we're talking about South Africa today, and, uh, and and you know, with with Jacob Zuma having recently made a visit to here, here we're just we're last actually, week. Just last our week, our president right. was here. Uh, we're in, and since we have you, an authentic, well, semi-authentic South African here, we actually are joined by a real. South African, <laughs> not hey, like you hey, people. Hey, 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 hey! Introduce our guest, Jeremy. <laughs> you know these Americans—they're so racist. John Bailey uh, is our guest today. John Bailey, welcome, uh, a good friend of mine. He's Asia correspondent of ENCA, the South African Twenty-Four Hour News Channel. Uh, welcome to Seneca, John. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. I'm, so, Thank I'm you sorry about this Chinese guy who's the, the, the co-host. Of um, course you're not. You're not a racist, right? No, no. Of course not. <laughs> so, John, you... Uh, I am. <laughs> <laughs> John, you originally... You know, we will bear this cross for the rest of our lives, white South Africans. You at least, you know, have some color. You you don't get blamed. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, to my benefit, I guess. <laughs> anyway, you originally came to China as a bureau chief for SABC, the South African uh, Broadcasting Corporation, in 2008. And you've been here ever since, uh, now with ENCA. Um, and uh, I think you are the only South African journalist uh, actually uh, working permanently in China. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that, that's true, Jeremy. Also, uh, as far as I know, the only broadcast journalist from Africa in, in China and also possibly in the region here in Asia. Oh wow. My God. How can that possibly be? It's possible. Believe you me, oh, it's, no. uh, it's, um, it's something that I'm trying to fix out, uh, well, to figure out every now and then, but that is a strong possibility. Well, then again, I mean, it's it's good. You get to completely define the narrative and completely frame every issue however the hell you want, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we try to, to look at uh, the way we've, we've, we've uh, structured the, um, uh, the work that we do here is to always try and get a developmental kind of angle to the way we look at things, you know, mm-hmm. coming from the, the, the biggest develop, uh, developing uh, continent, China being a developing country, look at the same kind of issues, trying to get... The same, uh, because uh, the same kind of uh, to tell to tell that narrative to people back in South Africa and in Africa, uh, that's that's always the the challenge. But but also it's great when people can kind of relate to what happens here in China, because uh, there's 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 still a lot of stereotypes back in uh, in Africa or especially in South Africa about China. So Jeremy, I, I hope you'll let me ask just the really basic stage setting question. Go for it. I mean, like g- give our listeners a sense of the history of relations between China. And South Africa. I mean, how soon after the end of apartheid did relations become normalized and did recognition switch from Taipei to Beijing? Mm-hmm. Well, um, Kaiser happened in 1998. That's when the, the switch happened. Um, mm-hmm. uh, to the annoyance of uh, Taipei, of course, because uh, before our, our first democratic elections in 1994, uh, Taipei still, they gave something to the tune of 25 million US dollars to the uh, the ruling party now in South Africa, the African National Congress, the ANC. Um, and they were really pushing hard to try and get South Africa to recognize both Taiwan and mainland. But it was clear that uh, the switch was going to make, uh, was going to be, be, be made. And uh, so when Nelson Mandela was still present, um, he came out here uh, once. Um, and soon after that, in 1998, he, uh, they, they made the switch to uh, to mainland. Mm, how much did the did, did Beijing pay the ANC? <laughs> well, officially, there's this, 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 no, there's no uh, figure out there. Um, Beijing will tell you that they supported the liberation movements in uh, South Africa and through the rest of Africa and developing uh, nations. In fact, that's that's still the message that uh, you hear now, even last week when uh, President Zuma was here. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the basis of the. Of the friendship or the cooperation that exists, and is there some truth to that? Did did China in fact support Inkata or ANC during during the struggle against apartheid? Well, certainly there was a lot of the even the some of the the, the members of the ANC now some of the leaders that they received some kind of military and political training. 
from the Chinese side, but also the Soviet Union. Uh, they played a big role in uh, supporting these liberation movements. Right. So certainly, the uh, I think the the Chinese uh, played a big role. And for the Chinese, of course, their thing was that Africa uh, helped them to get their seat on the Security Council of the the, the UN. Uh, and and you hear that all the time. That's mm-hmm. why they are they will not forget their African friends. Right, because one of the five seats, the permanent members, right, is 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 China and. And that, there's there's definitely truth to that, right? I mean, they voted as a block. They all voted in favor of 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 of, of China getting the seat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Africa voted uh, to enlarge the um, most African countries. Uh, those who was who were not uh, supporting Taiwan at the time, they uh, they voted for for China to be back in the well to be part of the the uh, the permanent uh, members of the Security Council. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we fast forward to? Today, or rather not today, but last week, the, the Zuma, Jacob Zuma, the, the state visit. Uh, so uh, Jacob Zuma, our president, was here for three days, I think. Lots of meetings, both uh, Xi Jinping, Li Keqiang, and many other meetings. Mm-hmm. Deals signed. Can you kind of sum up, John, what happened uh, during this visit and what deals were done? Well, Jeremy, what was interesting uh, about this visit as compared to the, the visit in twenty. 20- 10, when uh, Jacob uh, Zuma came out there the first time. He came with a huge delegation back then in uh, 2010, like 400 business people. This time around, it was less people, about 130 business people. Uh, and it was clear that those who were here, they've, they've been doing business with China for some time. It's not uh, newbies around. So they, they were a little bit more focused than last time. Last time was a bit more, more politics. This time was, let's get down to the nitty-gritty of talking business. Uh, let's get some some trade going, let's get the economic development uh, or the benefit out of this uh, this political capital that's, that South Africa has invested here, here in China. So, by, by denying the Dalai Lama uh, a visa and other... other I, I, I would guess so. that, that would have been, that would have certainly have played uh, some, some role um, because, uh, I mean, it's been three times that he has been uh, denied a visa and... Yeah. Uh, uh, as you know, China has has praised or thanked South Africa yeah, for, yeah. for for not allowing him in, into the country. Of course, the the South African government will say that uh, it's just the the process that they've been the following. process. Yeah, the process. Yeah, yeah. The I, I know. You know, I, we we understand the language. Um, Plausible denial. So, what were the deals that happened? Okay, so the deals were um, they signed agricultural what they call protocols where. Soon you'll see South African apples. Um, Yay, because China. South African apples are really, really good. If oh, I'm good. Just I can't plug my, my, our fruit is great. So yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll see um, apples here. Um, you'll see also maize. That's going to, that's gonna, um, they, they say that. Maize, probably, corn. Corn. Yumi. Yumi. Nanfeta Yumi. That's so good. <laughs> that's great. So that's, that on the one hand, we'll see some other citrus fruits uh, probably coming out um, in the new year as well. Nachis, uh, oranges. Wait, I'm sorry, what, what's a nachi? Sorry, a nachi is a South African word for a tangerine. Yeah. Ah, yeah. So okay. you'll see that out here. This date's going to go from China to South Africa. I'm not sure. I wasn't aware that South Africans eat that uh, many dates, but yeah. So South Africa will get Chinese dates. And um, then we have these uh, infrastructure deals, uh, Transnet, which is the... Wait, what, what about enterprise. wine? What about South African wine? Oh, wine. Wine is going to... You'll see more South African wine out, out here. Yay! Well, it's still big in, in, in Hong Kong, but it's, it's slowly entering the mainland market. Two oceans, right? Well, no, don't, no, that no. That's one? that's the well, what's the like cheap the ass cheap American yeah, let's wine? Let's not have that uh, as the yeah. benchmark for South yeah. African no, wine. No, no. Okay, um, that's that's ocean. no, it's supermarket wine. It's fine. Okay, it's yeah, supermarket yeah, it's, wine. It's fine. Yeah. It's, so, it's quite drinkable. Yeah, it is drinkable. Um, but I won't necessarily buy it in in China. Not okay. for the price. No, that no endorsement here for Two Oceans. Sorry. So what 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 are the deals? Is that just the Joburg Transnet? Transnet, yeah. China South, South Railway and China North Railway, they're going to build locomotives in South Africa. Um, the, um, the deal's worth about $3 billion US dollars. And is this in a joint venture with uh, Transnet, the South African state-owned yeah, yeah, railway yeah. What, company? Yeah, what they're going to do, yeah. they're going to set up a what they call a locomotive park. So most of those locomotives will be, well, they'll be built in South Africa. So they'll, the procurement... Uh, a large percentage of the of the 
the goods that they need. We'll be bo- uh, we'll, they, they'll buy it in South Africa and there'll be training that will happen. I think they'll send quite a lot of South Africans over here to learn Chinese, to engage with the with those um, those engineer engineer types that's going to go over from from China. Oh, fantastic! And uh, will will there be a high speed rail component of this? Well, there's talk about that. The, the problem is, uh, it's we're not sure if, we, if it's economically viable to to have high speed rail. I mean, well, we don't have enough people. Not enough people, but also electricity. I mean, it's you, you oh, know not enough electricity. <laughs> electricity problems in in, in 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 South Africa. That's why nuclear was also the, yeah. That brings deal. us to that, another deal. Yeah, it was also, deal. Also, so, uh, what are the specifics of that? At this stage, what they've decided is it's a financial framework. That's how they structured. That was the, that was the kind of words that they use. A financial framework has been put in place. So, if and when South Africa decides to go nuclear to Build the second nuclear plant because you know we have one uh, down in Cape Town at Kuburg. Kuburg, uh, yeah. Then there's already the framework will be in place. This financial frame framework, how the the Chinese will assist in in terms of funding, what will be the uh, the cost of the the, the loans, um, and then also the the type of skills transfer because ultimately South Africa, what they want is that you don't want to have. Chinese sitting in South Africa who has to look after the maintenance. They want those skills to be transferred to South Africans. The same with the locomotives, uh, the same with any of the um, issues uh, about industrialization. This is a very important question, I think, for African countries dealing with China. Because basically China, one of the great successes of uh, reform and opening up, in my opinion, was that it required foreign investors to disseminate their technology to to train local people to mm. hand over technology sometimes that wasn't done in very ethical ways but uh it was stipulated into contracts uh in the early parts of reform and opening up and africa generally hasn't done a great job of 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 you know requiring that kind of thing from colonialists and mm. now in you know investors essentially do you think the south african government and 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 you know whoever's been putting together these deals has done it properly this time where we will actually see south africans being trained technology transfers you know jeremy it's it's quite interesting it does seem that though they they have much more of a plan um and and, and i'm not dismissing other african countries but the way the south african government is going about they're going to start setting up uh, various special economic zones. They're going to set up uh, science and technology parks as well. And the Chinese have shown interest in in getting involved in those those projects. And a, a major requirement is that there must be skills transfer must happen in those parks once investors move in. And they are specific. And and they have um, the South African government has favorable deals um, for any foreign investor moving into South Africa because. We need much more foreign investment. That really hasn't happened in South Africa. Under the, uh, under the previous uh, government of uh, Tabu Mbeki, there was all this indication that that might happen. It never really, really took off foreign direct investment. So this time around, they're saying that anybody who wants to invest, on the one hand, if it comes to... The, the, the one important thing with the Chinese is that they, they're trying to get the Chinese to commit to what they call beneficiation of our natural resources. So instead of just sending a rock full of diamonds to China, the Chinese um, will now have to add value to that, that rock. I mean, they have to polish the diamond and then buy it from, from South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so not a case of them the just value add, add right, value right, to, right. to, to, to that, uh, that diamond. Here. So that's what they, they're going to push the, the, the Chinese. And the other thing is the, the South African government has identified certain value-added products already that they're going to... So Beginning next year, uh, the Chinese have said that they will send uh, buying trade missions to South Africa. They will go and look at what these these products are that might be used here in that that might be applicable to the Chinese uh, market, and then they'll go and buy those products in South Africa. Beneficiation. That's a that's a good word. And it's a good concept, actually. I think that uh, we'll see more uh, sub-Saharan African countries. Make deals like that with China. I, I mean, I would like to see that. I mean, to see actually more of the value add actually happening on board. I mean, because right now it's mostly these infrastructure for resources deals. They're just taking raw resources out and doing the the value add. Yeah, yeah, no, no, leaves, that's, right? that's that's that's. Uh, I think that's a must thing. You can't you can't have. We know what the um, uh, colonial powers did. Uh, I mean, they just 
took the raw material out and that's what uh, China has been accused of as well. So if China wants to be seen to be doing the right thing, that's the route that uh, ideally they, they should go. And that's, is your sense that that's, that is actually happening? I think, you, you know, what was what's quite, another interesting thing that they, that they signed was a, a five to ten year agreement where, like, like the Chinese have these five year plans um, in terms of the uh, developmental model, that's what the South African and Chinese government has signed as well. So they will look at what these agreements, what are these agreements that they that they put on paper, and how the development, um, how, how how it's uh, actually if it, if it's coming to uh, um, if it's if it's developing to the, the the level that they want it to develop. So that's something interesting to to look at as well. It's not just a matter of we have it on paper. So uh, where where is all of this uh, this going? So that's that's. That's that's for me is is an interesting thing that the it was a government to government deal that they signed. Can I ask you about the personal chemistry between Xi Jinping and Jacob Zuma? Mm. Because both from the Chinese state media or propaganda and from the just the evidence of the photographs, they seem to be very comfortable with, with each other. I think the People's Daily headline, uh, one state media headline was, uh, you know, all smiles, Zuma meets uh, Xi Jinping. As opposed to, say, Shinzo Abe. Or, well, or, as opposed to, you know, many other leaders where Xi looks kind of uptight, you know. I mean, he, does, he, he seemed relaxed. Jacob Zuma's got, I mean, he knows. Jacob Zuma is a man who knows how to smile and many other things. Um, but uh, they Take both. Showers. Is there a personal chemistry, do you think? I think there's a, there's a good chemistry. And it was interesting uh, looking at the way that they, that they responded to one another. They were all uh, cozying up, um, the two of them, while they, they, while they um, looked at these deals being signed between, on the one hand, the, the government departments, but also the, the private sector. Uh, and in the meeting that they had, uh, the two the two leaders, uh, Xi Jinping referred to Jacob Zuma as his brother, oh. uh, and he said it a few times. So I'm not sure uh, if Xi Jinping would say that to Obama, for instance. Um, um, maybe not. Um, but he was. There's a very <laughs> warm. Uh, there's quite a warmth be- between the two of them. And the other thing is, of course, they see each other quite often. It's the state visit, they see each other at BRICS, at Bricks, they see yeah. each other at G20, uh, at the G77, uh, the climate climate talks. Mm-hmm. Next year, it's FOCAC. Uh, next year, is another BRICS coming up in, in Russia. So there's a lot of engagement between uh, Xi Jinping and, and, um, and Jacob Zuma. And they seem to be consulting each other on, on a lot of global uh, global issues. Even the, the, whole, the whole issue about the reform of the international financial structures, well, IMF, uh, World Bank. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk. They seem to be in, in synergy. And even as I said, when they when they stood there, the the camera guy that I that I used during the day he said, "Wow, look at the smiles uh, that these two guys have." It, it was something to be old. So give us a sense sense of, of 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 the some of the metrics and maybe some of the benchmarks and like the the scale. Of, of the growth of trade, where where did it come from, and where is it now, and what what is it projected to be now in in in, in light of the the new new uh, uh, agreements that have been reached on this mm. visit? Well, at the moment, the bilateral trade uh, stands at about twenty three billion US dollars. Oh, yeah. uh, not, nothing, no peanuts at all. That's great. Yeah, yeah it's uh, China has invested in the region of ten billion into South Africa. There is mm-hmm. actually. Quite a few South African companies who have invested in in China, most of them have left already. They've they've localized. They come here. They they do their business. That's what South African companies. Not seem just NASPERS either, right? I mean, that's probably the most. No, a little one. bit more than just uh, <laughs> NASPERS. Yeah. So they seem to they they've localized and then they. Can they can, can we name some of them? Because people, I mean, even NASPERS. So NASPERS is a South African MIH, media yeah, company yeah. that I, I sometimes gloss as the Xinhua news agency of the apartheid state, although that's not mm. entirely accurate. But uh, it's a I mean it's a commercial media company now, thirty something percent owner of Tencent, mm. an investment they made. You know, more than ten years ago, what the best investment, investment ever yeah. in the yeah. whole world, <laughs> the yeah. universe of investing. Uh, you have SAB Miller, yeah, uh, which be, is yeah, they own uh, South African breweries originally, and they yeah. are a forty-nine percent owner of Snow Beer, which is the yeah. biggest beer they in the have world about by 90, volume. Ninety breweries here in, in China yeah. now. Um, what other? Big standout you, successes. I'm drinking standard Bank. Right now, standard Bank. Uh, is uh, 20% owned by ICBC and mm. has a lot of business here. So, I mean, these are three South African companies that have had tremendous successes. What are the others, John? 
Yeah, I, I know Landpack is out here, which is involved in, um, in uh, road infrastructure. Right. They, they are doing quite well, although they've been in courts uh, in and out every now and then because of in intellectual property issues with, uh, with the Chinese here. Uh, that's been uh, quite unfortunate. But yeah, the, the, and then um, the, um, Anglo-America was, uh, Anglo-America, they've had a, a big... Uh, which let's explain Anglo-America. It's one of those companies like, you know, you don't know what it is. It's actually the South African, the I guess the most significant in some ways mining company in South Africa yeah. responsible for basically diamonds and gold uh, extracting and marketing it globally. And then, of course, we had uh, Sassel as well. Sassel is the, uh, they've got this uh, coal to, to liquid um, yeah, technology. Yeah, faction, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. So... Uh, they they had uh, I think a uh, uh, hundred families out here at, at one stage. Wow! Uh, so they were going to go big here in China as well. But then uh, things I think negotiations didn't work out that well. But they've invested a substantial amount in terms of research and and development uh, here in China uh, with the plan that they wanted to. They were they were going to build a plant of about thirteen billion uh, US here in China. But that's not people. happening. That's all. That's, that's not that's happening canceled, because they, right. they were, they were in intellectual property um, rights issues. Mm -hmm. Can we go back to the the chemistry between C and Zuma? Uh, not so much the personal chemistry, but the the chemistry between the Communist Party of China and the African National Congress, our ruling party in the government. Mm. Um, there's been some interesting news recently that the Chinese Communist Party is going to build a party school for the ANC uh, in South Africa. And I know that there's a lot of party-to-party -party contacts. It's not government-to-government -government contacts. Uh, mm. So we, as the public or South African public or Chinese public, we don't know what they talk about because it's not a state visit. It's party-to-party. -party. Mm. Um, you know, this relationship, uh, what do you make of it? The party-to-party? The, the -party. Yeah. Um, let's not forget we also have the South African Communist Party in South Africa. They actually have almost a – their relationship – with the, with the the Communist Party of, of China is also very solid. And uh, when the Secretary General comes out here, he's being, he's, um, all these, the way he's being treated is almost like, like royalty. Like by, a head of state, yeah. Yeah, yeah so a uh, head of state, yeah. Uh, so so that's, that's, that's a strong um, relationship as well. But of course and we should probably uh, 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 tell listeners who may not be familiar with the intricacies of South African politics, but the ANC is kind of a, uh, there's a tripartite alliance, I guess you used to call it. Uh, and uh, it's the ANC, which has been the most powerful one, plus the South African Communist Party, plus COSATU, the Congress of South African Trade Unions. So these are three leftist political organizations that basically operated almost as one. Mm -hmm. And to an extent, still do right, John. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, no, they, yeah. they, 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 they still do. They, there's some rumblings in, within Kusatu. Kusatu seems to be the, the the split on China because they yeah. they seem to have a problem with China because basically South Africa's textile Rest industry jobs, yeah. was destroyed by cheap Chinese imports, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a big big issue for for Kusatu and of course the uh, the workers' rights. That's uh, you know Kusatu is very strong on um, making sure that workers are being treated uh, according to the constitution and uh, the the human rights so that's that's a bit of an issue uh, you 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 don't find a lot of kusatu members or leaders coming out to to china it's the the south african communist party and the anc ones yeah those uh, those ones so so in terms of uh, the the party school that you're referring uh, or that you referred to jeremy this for the last few years every i mean let, let, let me go back a bit all the members of the national executive committee of the anc has been to China um, on a, on sponsored trips by the by the ruling party here to mm. to visit and and every time they would go to the party school down in in Shanghai. Um, also, they would attend lectures here because this, uh, because the ANC has for a long time they've been wanting to set up a party school where they can politic po uh, politically educate their members mm -hmm. uh, and especially talk about uh, in terms of discipline and. Uh, what what they expect from from an ANC cater, if I must put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, so now it seems this this uh, there's quite a quite a bit of movement going on there. Whether they, I mean there are reports about how much money the the Communist Party of China is is going to give to this party school. 
it's it's difficult to to figure out if we'll never like, know. Yeah, it's it's very difficult at this stage to find out how much, if any. They well, I, I hope they send Wanki Shan and the anti-corruption squad uh, to that party school to give some lectures as a South African citizen. That's my hope. Well, let's 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 hope uh, that he, that he'll. Uh, I mean that. Anti-corruption will, will play a, a big part in, 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 in all of that. That would be good. Okay, back to Xi Jinping. Uh, so you, are you, as far as I'm aware, are the only foreign journalist that has actually ever had a one-on-one interview with him since he became president. Do, is, is that is, correct? Is that true? Yeah. Well, um, at the time when this interview happened, you had uh, a Russian-based guy and you had an Indian-based uh, person, but they were not, they were government-type officials who were interviewing him as well, but they were interviewing him, him separately. So, uh, so, so yeah, the BRICS, the, 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 aside from the, the BRI, no, no, Brazilian, the RI got their chance and the S, South Africa of the BRICS. Yeah. But you were the only sort of actual media person. Who, yeah, who I was the only uh, uh, practicing journalist. Because right. uh, what, what happened was that we, well, I knew that the BRICS, uh, summit was coming up, which is the uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa uh, meeting was coming up in South Africa in 2013. So obviously a Chinese leader was going to go. So I approached the officials here, asked them, listen, who's going out to South Africa? Is it going to be... They they, they didn't even want to say Xi Jinping at the time. They said, well, uh, we're not sure who's going to be the next leader. Uh, um, so... Yeah, it took a while to talk about because uh, all I wanted was was say, listen, can we? Is there a possibility of doing an interview with whichever the whoever the leader will be to go to South Africa? So it was a lot of back and fro, and um, I think about two weeks or three weeks before they before the interview was uh, was was going to take place, they said, listen, there is a likelihood that you'll have an interview. So that was interesting, and then of course you had to submit questions, and I submitted a host of, of questions. And were some of them struck? Were some of them vetted out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. there was there was definitely you know it's uh, the 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 way the the Chinese government operates here. You uh, you submit your questions, um, they change here, you change there, and then at some stage you you have to reach a compromise. Right. Um, so I think at the end we we managed to ask our our questions. We had to to kind of stick to South Africa, China, South Africa within the developing world. Um, so past the number one price was to get this interview, right? Uh, and we were fortunate to to get it. And how, I mean, did you get a sense of him being? Because I mean, I've seen the the interview. You know, it's obviously very scripted. I mean, you can actually see him looking at his notes some of the time when he's answering. Mm. Uh, but I mean, you're in a room with him. Uh, you know, uh, obviously there's a camera crew, but you're you're, you're right across the uh, the table. Um, and he does. I mean, uh, the last question you asked was about the World Cup and football, where it was obviously still scripted, but at least he did put a bit of personality into it. Mm. I mean, did you get a sense of the man? Well. Th- Jeremy, that's one of the reasons why uh, I was so interested in, in, in doing this interview. Not so much about the the content, which was important, but just to get a sense of who this guy Important, is. but just boilerplate. You could get any of his answers from Xinhua. News yeah, release, yeah, it was, basically, it was right, just important know. to get a sense of, yes, the the new leader of China for the next decade. and the Next decade? Ha, ha, ha. Next 25 years. <laughs> oh, I said it here first. Maybe 50 years. Anyway. Okay, um, as far as I don't tell yeah. <laughs> But uh, it was it was um, quite interesting. Just the way he came into that room was with a lot of confidence. There was uh, the way he walked, even mm. was you could see uh, he was. This he is a man swagger. on a mission. Yeah, he had the swagger in the way that he mm. that he walked in the. He knew where he had to sit. Um, of course, as you say, he's, he had these notes, and um, and it was one of his first interview with uh, with foreign media, probably. His well, only, I, I mean, I, th- I really think I couldn't find, I, yeah. I tried to track another one down. I don't think there has been no, one. No, no, I don't think they... they and if any listener one. knows of one, please email us about it. Yeah, so, so I mean, he was, he was, initially was a little bit nervous. I think there was some nervousness maybe. Um, he kind of settled in a little, because I think it was so important that he got the message across what they wanted him to, to, to say in terms of these geopolitical issues um but in terms of just the the way he conducted himself uh very confident very very confident um and 
there was a different kind of aura. I met um, the previous leader, Hu Jintao, at a, at a function as well, uh, where you had, uh, I think about we were about 20 of us or something. Um, he was a bit more stiff. Oh, really? Imagine that. <laughs> much, much more stiff. <laughs> As compared to as compared to Ping, I can you, see why a, you're a journalist, John. Your powers <laughs> of observation are unparalleled. <laughs> yes, you, you got that sense from him. That's really strange. Like he I mean, was like this stuff. Wow, gosh. Well, gosh, they used to say the same thing about Al Gore. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, stiff. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the, Xi Jinping, what, what, um, this, can you remind me what the the year was? What, when when did this interview happen? The interview happened in uh, March uh, 2013. Okay, March 2013. It yeah. was so his his first he, he was visit his, abroad. Okay. He went to Moscow and then he flew to South Africa to attend the BRICS meeting there, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was already, I mean, all, he had already... He just uh, basically, you know, yeah, assumed the... Although the, really the, in November the, of the, the previous rains. year, he already, yeah. he, he already had... Listen, John, we have uh, Howard French coming onto the show uh, very soon. And uh, I wanted to, I mean, since we're not going to have both of you in the room together, I, I, I just wanted to sort of get your take on the, the topic that we're going to be talking to him about, which is, of course, his new book and about the, the broader issue of Sino-African relations. I mean, he sort of falls on a, a certain spectrum of, of attitudes toward China's presence in Africa that um, maybe has Deborah Brodigam on one end of it or, you know, um, Dembisa Moyo on, you know, on it. And then him sort of, you know, well well toward the other side, right, who, who tends to be much more critical, does not see uh, Chinese intentions as pure as the driven snow exactly. Uh, where do you fall on that spectrum and... and uh, do you do you have you read Howard's book and, and do you have a take on it? I I, I haven't read the book um, yet, but I, I know of it and uh, I've I've engaged with him uh, before. Okay. Um, so my take on on the way China is is operating in 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 Africa, I think one shouldn't look at it as a, as a continent. It's you 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 might look at the different regions and of course also bilaterally the way they they engage. Um, there are certain countries where the Chinese seem to just run rampant. Get where they just do whatever they want to. Zambia, you're saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, they. Well, the the Zambian seems to be be uh, fighting back at at, at, at true, certain right? at certain times. Um, so that's that's why for me, if if you look at the way they engage with 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 Africa in different regions, uh, especially the, the the private the private sector, I, I think the 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 Chinese government has little to no control over some of these private companies of theirs operating in. In, in China, that's that's the in Africa, the absolutely, issue. yeah. So they, yeah that's, and and that's people something that's lost on a lot of people. Yeah. I think a lot of people understand it as just sort of this, um, you know, a monolithic state with you know that, that that every move by any individual actor in Africa is a Chinese state move. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. just not the case. No, it's not the case. I mean, um, the, um, the 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 issue, of course, is like these guys go in the big risk, uh, big returns. That's mm -hmm. that's the attitude that they that they have. Um, while the when you look at these the the other thing also is that you have to look at what the African politicians and the leaders what they are doing. Uh, often you find a case where a politician, a, an African politician, would tell a Chinese state-owned company, let's say, for the sake of his constituency, he needs a hospital to be built somewhere, right? So the Chinese go in there, they build this hospital. Uh, it's in a godforsaken place. There's no maintenance. A year later, the thing starts falling apart, and uh, fingers get uh, gets pointed at the Chinese for saying, "But how can you not look after this place? Look, uh, look what's what's happening here." Uh -huh. But you have to 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 just go a little bit further back to say, "But how did why did the Chinese build this hospital there in the first place? Who is responsible?" So, uh, I think African leaders have to they have to do a lot of introspection. In terms of the way that they deal with the with the Chinese, um, and yeah, come come next year, there's going to be this forum on China Africa cooperation that's going to be held in, in yeah. South Africa. Uh, normally, the the way the Chinese operate, they come there, they have the eight points. They say, "Boom, this is what we what we can do, what we can give to you." And often Africa says, "Okay, yes." Uh, so we'll have to see what if the African side is going to be if they're going to operate differently uh, come next year. Mm. Jeremy? Before we get on to the final section of the, the show, recommendations, John, I'd like to ask you one more question that's not 
particularly China related, which is about your uh, misspent uh, or very well spent. Well youth. spent. Um, uh, can you just tell us something about you know you uh, have a, a history as a, a protester? You you were protesting for the release of Nelson Mandela uh, when uh, South Africa still had apartheid and my people were. You know, oppressing your people. Oppressing your people. Um, and everyone else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, true confessions. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> so can you just like tell us what, what you did, your, a little bit, a potted history of your life as an activist in apartheid South Africa? Well, the thing is, I grew up in a, in a very small town outside of, of Cape Town. Um, and uh, we, we had it quite bad. Um, Which the, town? In in a town town called Wellington, so it was um, we well even even today when you go back you see not much has changed the status quo still remains in the in the hand of the minority whites in Farmers. South Africa in terms of in terms of the uh, economy. Um, and so, who, who can you just introduce? Because people aren't really so familiar. I think maybe foreigners, you know, with our ethnic issues. So who lives in Wellington? What kind of people are there? Well, I guess you you're asking me in terms of uh, the race demographically, the races, racially, yeah? Yeah. yeah, yeah, racially. So uh, you have white people, you have the um, what you call colored people, the 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 mixed ones of us, and then you have uh, African people, black people. Uh, there's a nearby township, Mbakweni, uh, which hasn't also developed all that much. And they're uh, Kosa mostly people. They are Kosa mostly. Oh, Kosa. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's that's the demographics of 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 Wellington. So. For us, I mean, you had no choice. You had to get involved in the in the fight against apartheid. It was a unjust, unjust uh, system. Uh, you had to do something about that. And I think for me, uh, that probably set the basis for my interest in, in journalism because <laughs> so many of the the newspapers that were published in the region were completely blacked out. Where you would find a a newspaper where everything is censored in there. You get just about no information, and the only information that you get is from the the state the state media. Um and yeah, so that was quite annoying. Uh, so yeah, it 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 ended up myself and uh, and a lot of my my friends getting involved in political education, handing out pamphlets to to people just to create an awareness. Uh, and then often we would run into trouble with the police. Um, most of us were 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 detained for for our activities. Uh, and and also yourself uh, included. Say again. Yourself included. Yeah, we we had no choice. It right. was a collective, uh, so we had to 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 do it. Um, and then Nelson Mandela, of course, he was he was being held uh, captive in the next door town, mm. um, in in Paul. At a, at the time, the the prison was called Victor Vester. They they've changed the name now to Drakenstein. So we would go with bus loads of people, trying to violently get to his to the, the house where he was um, uh, being um, held prison and then try and get him out. And the police would, of course, always use tear gas and rubber bullets. And, uh, and yeah, they would, we would have... Uh, um, yeah, it, it was quite sore after, after the beatings. The rubber bullets and the beatings. From the, Did you from get the beaten with a shambok or like a, 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 you know, a club? A, yeah, yeah, it happened a, a few times. nightstick, yeah. yeah it, it happened a few times. Even, even at school, um, they would... We would protest peacefully in school. They would uh, break down the gates of the school and just come and beat people up. Oh, God. So it's either that or they fire tear gas into in, into your classroom or use rubber bullets uh, to disperse people. We, we, we just like this. Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to go with another analogy. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a nice jab there. <laughs> so we, we always had this thing where we, where we said that we should send the police um, the apartheid police to to um, get proper education because they would tell us you have five minutes to disperse one two three four five and then they would fire. It was, that's that's that uh, that was the, the, the five, five minutes. minutes. You have <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bailey. You have five minutes to disperse one two three yeah, four so, five. So, yeah. so so that was that was that was us getting involved and then university days as well, uh, trying to trying to change the 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 political system. There that was that was. That was a challenge, uh, especially going to 
Stellenbosch University, where which was the the heartland, oh, the heartland of of, 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 of Afrikaans, white Afrikaans yeah. culture. Yeah, I was at you know University of Cape Town at mm. roughly the same time, which was very different. Would have been much easier for you there. Yeah, for 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 us, you you arrive there the first day, you see the old South African flag um, being waved very proudly around the yeah. Like, what, what 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 year was that? Uh, Nineteen ninety. Yeah. Right. So yeah, un unreconstructed still. Well, on that note, we should probably stop talking about our nostalgia for our apartheid past and get on to recommendations. That was fascinating, though. I'm, I'd really love to take you out for a beer and hear more. <laughs> anytime, Kaiser. Anytime. Great, great, John. Thanks. He's South African. He can drink a lot of beer. So you, mm. you know. Are you sure it's not brandy and coke? Brandy and coke too. Is that, is that a thing? Yeah. That's a thing. Really? That's right. our. Cl that that is a classic South African drink. Brandy and coke. Right. Yeah, it's normally. It's got, yeah. And the brandy is kind of like uh, American bourbon. Okay. It's sort of. Uh, mm. Yeah. Normally they say the 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 if you if you are a real brandy drinker you've got to like a you've got to have a three liter Ford parked in your garage a two liter brandy and a one liter coke. Okay. You see that's that's that, that's it. then you are hardcore. Oh my god. Yeah, that's our culture. You want to start, Jeremy? That's great. Um, okay, so recommendation. I mean, we, we sort of talked a little bit about protests. And, you know, today it seems the Occupy Hong Kong, something is happening in Hong Kong. The protests have been cleared or my Twitter timeline is totally like taken up with people uh, tweeting about Hong Kong. And, yeah, mine has been uh, for it, eight um, weeks. So. It, uh, it just a book that is long since I first read it at the age of 16 has been one of my favorite books. And I recently reread it and was delighted to discover that I didn't hate it. Um, and in fact, still like it a lot is Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which was also amazingly uh, popular in, in China in the 1980s. Um, I, I totally know where you're going with this, too. And I, I just this, I, I think this book. Uh, looks at so many sort of um, at, at at politics in a way that is just so smart and and so kind of uh, unsentimental and uh, wise as to human motivations about politics. It talks a lot about kitsch and it talks about political kitsch and it talks about the kitsch of the the left and that the the sort of the the height of a leftist political kitsch in in Europe is the, the grand march. Right. And the height of that is you go on the street and you protest and, 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 and then you make progress happen. That's the 68ers in France, uh, you know, the uh, generation, whatever, you know, American hippies and 60s, 70s counterculture people. It's the same uh, sort of you know, idea that, you, you know, the people get together, you march on the street and then you make you know, the popular movement makes change happen. And it informs a lot of the discussion about Arab Spring, a lot of the support of Western support for dissidents in China and elsewhere, a lot of the, the Western support and to an extent media kind of hyperventilating about Occupy Hong Kong. And I think this book is great to read. It's not about politics per se. Um, and the particular thing about the Grand March is there's a character called Sabina who's yeah. this Czech artist and she doesn't give a shit. She's the most unsentimental, sexy lady you've ever encountered. She leaves uh, Czechoslovakia because she, she uh, as an emigre she just can't deal with uh, the post Prague spring crackdowns and she has a, a boyfriend in Switzerland called Franz and he's kind of in love with her partly because he's romanticized her as this dissident who struggled against the evil communist Czech regime anyway he's too sentimental for her and they break up but he can't forget her and he ends up going to Cambodia uh, you know, and getting killed because he's marching because he thinks that he's kind of somehow um, impervious to that. Right? Uh, he he he's pleasing her because oh, right, she's right, the right, communist right. artist who he reads as dissident. He's thinking of Ai Weiwei, but in fact she's um, I don't know who she is. What would she doesn't give a shit. She she she's not interested in the long in the march. Um, anyway, so I just think this is a great book to read when, when thinking right now about China and why we as Westerners tend to support Occupy Hong Kong. And we, you know, anybody who's willing to, you know, be a dissenter, we, we, we tend to be very sympathetic with and unsympathetic with the t Communist Party. And I say this as somebody who's my main argument with Kaiser is often because we end up in 
you know, arguing these kind of stereotypical roles in a way. Uh, so I think it's relevant to this podcast. Sorry yeah. if I've gone on a bit, but here's, I, I here's wanted to explain cents, myself. Jeremy. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go for mine now. Um, I, I kind of cheated today, and uh, I was at home after work for a little while and jumped on Facebook, and uh, I said, what are your favorite old-school Chinese brands? I just I asked my, my friends. I mean, for, for me, I was as I was doing this, I was munching on Zhenglin Guazer. I don't know if you if you're a guadza eater, if you're a watermelon seed eater, but there's basically only one reliably great brand of guadza, and it's Zhenglin. Uh, it's produced in Lanzhou, in in, in Gansu province. Go Gansu! Yeah, I mean you got to buy the triple A ones, but I I uh, I remember I made the mistake once of telling my hosts when I was playing a concert in Lanzhou that I liked them, and the next day there was a a crate of them and shown up in my I had to, you know, haul it around on the rest of our tour and only managed to get through a couple of bags. But uh anyway, thank you, Lanjo, and thank you, Jungling Guazza. But my my what I wanted to do here is um so the other one that I mentioned is like a, a one that I really like is Lao Shan Kuang Chun Shui. Lao Shan the, the alkaline Kuang Chun Shui. Oh, know? I love it. That is, that, just, that is my favorite Chinese beverage like ever sort produced, of branded right? beverage. Exactly. You know? It's just the greatest. It's, it's the best. It's it's so it's so if, if you like salty things, you like soda water. If you like soda water, you'll love it. Right. It's slightly salty soda water. Do you, do you remember that um Bai Feng's bar by Ho Hai? Yes. So they used to serve it there. Yeah. And I'd always order one, you know, just sort of like to go with my scotch. But I, I would always order one. And there was this um there was this this waiter there who Lao had the funky, yeah, Lao Lao Huang. Huang. the funkiest accent. He would always ask me, you know, I'd say, like a Lao Shan Kuang Chun Shui. And he'd say, Xian Di Dandi. Xian Di Dandi. Yeah, salty or not, not right. salty, right? But in this really <laughs> trippy. Xian Di Dandi. Lao Huang. Oh, yeah, God, you're going to yeah, make me yeah, cry yeah. with nostalgia. Yeah, anyway, so I want to just run through what some of my Facebook buddies said. Um, James Palmer has been on the show. White Rabbit, you know? White Rabbit uh, Candy. Yeah, yeah, White Rabbit Candy, absolutely. Kaiser Cantola, uh, who was a, a I think it was just our thousandth like on Facebook and we gave her a, we sent her a book as a, a prize Baby Yang you know Baby Yang I know, uh, I know. Baby Yang soda uh, I like the way it looks not the way it tastes yeah, but, yeah. Uh, Rohir Creamers who was on the show just you know a couple times just very recently uh, he said Dong Lai Shun so you know he the says there's a few yeah. things that he wouldn't do for a decent hot pot Dong Lai Shun yeah absolutely uh, a couple of people you know Figa Flying pigeon bicycles, but I'm not sure that anyone actually knows the. I mean, if if you've ridden a Fego, you've also ridden a Yongjo. Yongjo is just better. Anyway, um, I, I'll quibble on that. Um, we got you know Arwat Ho. That's kind of you know predictable. Uh, Aaron Back from the Wall Street Journal. Harbin Pijo all the way. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, this is probably my favorite one was from Amy Lee, uh, who who said Zhenjiang vinegar. Which is just completely right. That's just Zhenjiang vinegar is just. But so, uh, I mean, that's a town, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. But Zhenjiang brand, there's the Zhenjiang brand. Just like, just like you know, like Fuling has a you know, there's Fuling uh, pickled mustard root, which right. is like like you know, made famous by Pete Hessler's book Rivertown. But uh, to- totally. Pete Hessler. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, <laughs> Everything. He, Everything uh, is connected it has the to Pete Hessler. Yeah, <laughs> and then here's another one of my favorites. That, I mean, uh, my my friend Shelby McKean said her husband is into Maling canned tomatoes and canned mushrooms and and uh, Utanro. Uh, there's there's actually an Utanro brand that somebody else, Scott Tong, who uh, was the NPR correspondent for Marketplace in Shanghai until a couple of years ago. He uh, recommended um, Maling Utanro. Which is just also just fabulously good. I mean, it's like the standard. It's what you put in your in 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 your um, mala. Um, what's up? Shangla. Oh, yeah, it's like Campbell's mala Cool Shangla. Can, but you know, yeah, meh. Uh, okay. <laughs> right. I, I'm into it. Old school Chinese brands, and I'm going to make one quick recommendation of a place to buy a lot of old school Chinese brands. It's the Yenfeng Department Store. Yenfeng. It, it's if you live in Beijing. It's uh, just south of the ex- old exhibition center by the Carrefour. You just go straight south of there, uh, just south of the Jing'an Dasha. There's this. It's kind of hard to see. It's called the Yenfeng, but on the second floor, they've got like those uh, old school soap you can get. You know, it's like like a foot long bar of soap that you use to scrub. Wow. I mean, every like those old thermoses with the really. Do they have the old stuff. toilet paper before the proper toilet? toilet paper, but they're right, like yeah, really yeah. rough, like Sand three bar toilet right, paper. Exactly. They have that. You, you can use it, you know, in lieu of an ads. If you have you can some, make like, a tent out of it. Work <laughs> to do, right? exactly. It's Great. awesome. Uh, 
It's basically the cause of all my. Well, anyway, I won't. Hemorrhoids, huh? Uh, no, I wasn't yeah. going to go there. Oh, okay. Had to go there. Yeah, John know. Bailey, what, what recommendations <laughs> do you have? How can you follow on that? Yeah, no, no, I'm not going to even try to to match uh, the two of you. It's uh, impossible. <laughs> and then, I mean, uh, for me, it's just, I think my recommendation for people is to, to travel more in, in, in China. I, I, I love traveling in China. It's, uh, it's one Great of those advice. things that's, that's, um, <clears throat> that's been keeping me going, going here. Realizing that this is not just one big country where everybody speaks the same language, they do the same things. You discover these uh, different cultures uh, out there, and uh, I think my uh, my favorite city would be Hangzhou. Um, I also like uh, Chengdu um, uh, because I love spicy food. I love uh, going to Sichuan. Me too. uh, That's fun. Uh, The thing that I want to do is to do a proper road trip. Through uh, Sichuan and just visit all eat. these, huh? And eat, eat yeah. And just eat, eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just have no choice. I mean, that's that's for me in terms of a recommendation. With more in terms of if you want to understand China, you have to travel much, much more in this this country. Right, uh, not like uh, me. I, I, mean, I, I, I travel. Know, one of the fi- one of the fun places that I went to was uh, Mohe as well in the 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 north of of China, close to the the Russian border. Uh-huh, wow. Uh huh. Wow. And we got there in in, in in winter. It was something like. Negative Minus 30. 40 or something. <laughs> Whoa. Well, how do people survive here? But they do. They're on their bicycles. So it's um, it's fun to see how things... That That's the, the, the fun part for me about being in China. The, the fact that things are so dyna- dynamic here. There's always an energy. People have this uh, can-do attitude. Absolutely. Well, John Bailey, we want to thank you very much for coming, uh, taking the time and joining us and sharing your thoughts about Jacob Zuma, about Sino-African relations, about Sino-South African relations, and insights into the, the inner workings of Xi Jinping's mind. Uh, so we uh, look forward to having you back on again. I'm hoping to do a, a full BRICS show at some point where you will proudly recommend, re- represent the S on the end. <laughs> Thank you for that. The S I on the end. You're going to be the S on the end of bricks, John. Do you feel good about that? That's the S, the S, right? I don't know. You know, he's American. I don't understand what he said. No, there was no, 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 nothing, no slight intended there in the least. I assure you. And thanks, gentle listeners, for joining us once again on the Cynic Podcast. And is. Jeremy cackles us to our <laughs> bid you adieu yeah, and see you next week. Show. <laughs> it's John. Cackle on, he does Jeremy. this to me. <laughs>